everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. As always, I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. If you are listening on release day of this episode, Saturday, February 29th, happy leap year. I hope everybody had a great week, and in case you missed it, There have been some new set photos from the stand circulating on social media, and you can check those out on my Instagram page, The Circle Opens, and I also retweeted them on my Twitter, The Circle Opens. Um, Are you sensing a theme? And we got our first look at Greg Kinnear as Glenn Bateman, and um, we finally got to see James Marston as Stu, and Kojak. Kojak is adorable. I think most dogs are adorable, but it looks like they got an Irish setter which is the type of dog Kojak is in the book. In the 1994 miniseries, they used a golden retriever. So um, it's these little details I get really excited about that they got the right kind of dog for Kojak. So that's exciting. And you also see a photo of um, Jovan Adipo, Adipo, sorry, who plays Larry. And he is in a photo with Glenn and Stu. Um, and I think if you look at the photos, you know what scene is being filmed. I won't say it for risk of spoiling the end of this book. (laughs) But we also got a photo of Odessa Young um, as Fran and beside her, a little boy holding a guitar who will, who we all know um, is Leo uh, Rockway, which we have not yet met in the book, but we will soon. The photos look really great. I get really excited anytime something new comes out about the miniseries. But if you guys have been listening to this uh, podcast, you already know that. So (laughs) Anyway, so if you want to check those out, you can find them on social media. And uh, that's pretty much it for any updates I have on the stand from CBS All Access. So let's jump back into the book. I'm going to give you a quick recap of chapter 42, which was the last chapter in book one, Captain Trips. Stu met Fran and Harold, who were on their way to the CDC in Vermont, where they hoped to find people alive and working on stopping the flu. Stu tells them of his experience in Atlanta and then Stovington, Vermont, and asks to go with them once he realizes that his story isn't going to stop Harold from checking it out. Harold, who is instantly distrustful um, of Stu, says no, but once Stu assures him that he's not after Fran, Harold relents. Unfortunately, Stu realizes at the end of the chapter that maybe he does want Fran after all. And so we begin book two. On the Border. This book takes place between July 5th and September 6th of 1990. Like Captain Trips, King begins book two with some song quotes. The first is from American Tune by Paul Simon. We come on the ship they call the Mayflower. We come on the ship that sailed the moon. We come in the age's most uncertain hour and sing an American tune. But it's all right. It's all right. You can't be forever blessed. The second, looking hard for a drive-in, searching for a parking space, where hamburgers sizzle on an open grill night and day. Yes, juke 
Fox is jumping with records back in the USA. Well, I'm so glad I'm living in the USA. Anything you want, we got it right here in the USA. Of course, that's Chuck Berry. And chapter 43 opens with Nick Andros seeing a dead body lying in the middle of the street as he passes through May, Oklahoma. It's not the first corpse he's seen since leaving Shoyo, as he imagines there are thousands of dead bodies he's passed without actually seeing them, though in places he has certainly smelled them. This corpse is different, however, because out of nowhere, the dead man sits up. It startles Nick so badly that he loses control of his bike and crashes violently, leaving him with scraped hands and a cut, bleeding forehead. It turns out that the dead man isn't dead at all, but a young man carrying a bottle of whiskey. He had gotten drunk and simply passed out in the street. The young man is concerned for Nick, but Nick assures him non-verbally that he's okay. A bit of blood oozes into his bad eye, which is now covered by an eye patch, and he has a little bit of vision in that eye, but most of the world remains just a colorful blur when he tries to see through it. Nick can see the gash in his forehead from the bumper of a Plymouth, and after his experience with the bullet graze in his leg, he's a bit paranoid about infection. The man with the bottle of whiskey had been watching all of this with no expression at all. If Nick had looked up, it would have struck him as queer immediately. When he had turned away to examine his wound in the bumper's reflection, the animation had leaked out of the man's face. It became empty and clean and unlined. He was wearing bibbles that were clean but faded and heavy work shoes. He stood about 5'9", and his hair was so blonde it was nearly white. His eyes were bright, empty blue, and with the corn silk hair, his Swedish or Norwegian descent was unmistakable. He looked no more than 23, but Nick found out later he had to be 45 or close to it because he could remember the end of the Korean War and how his daddy had come home in uniform a month later. There was no question he might have made that up. Invention was not Tom Cullen's long suit. He stood there, empty of face, like a robot whose plug had been pulled. Then little by little, animation seeped back into his face. His whiskey-reddened eyes began to twinkle. He smiled. He had remembered again what the situation called for. Now, I wanted to read that passage because not only does it describe Tom Cullen, but it has a little bit um, of personality trait in there that is important later. So Tom Cullen is very concerned for Nick, who quickly writes him a note telling him that he's okay. Tom just scared him. He asks Tom if there's a drugstore around, and Tom introduces himself to Nick and explains that he can't read. He only got to the third grade, and by then he was 16 years old, and his dad made him quit because he said he was too big. So Nick realizes now that Tom has an intellectual disability. I just want to put a really small disclaimer here before we continue that if you've read this chapter, you know that King uses the word retarded quite a bit in this chapter to describe Tom, either in Nick's inner thoughts or, you know, describing parts of Tom's personality or even out loud. Um, I know that King did not write this with any kind of malicious intent or as an insult to Tom's character. In fact, I think Tom is probably the sweetest, most pure character in this entire book. Uh, This book was written in the 70s and the 90s. So that terminology back then was accepted um, and quote unquote, okay. 
But in 2020, I do not believe that that word should be in anybody's vocabulary anymore. This is not me trying to be woke or PC or whatever else you want to say. Um, It's just common decency to other people. I have a daughter who's on the spectrum, so I know how that word can be very hurtful, and I will not be using it. Tom has an intellectual disability, and I will just be using that whenever necessary. So let's get back to Tom and Nick. Nick tries to mimic to Tom that he cannot hear or speak, but Tom isn't quite grasping it. He tries again, but when Tom is still clueless, Nick kind of gives up, grabs his bike, and begins to pedal up the street to look for a drugstore. Tom jogs beside him, still extremely happy to see somebody, given he hadn't seen anyone around for almost a week. Tom tries to talk to Nick again, but just Nick doesn't seem to hear him. Tom tugs on his shirt and tries again, but Nick covers his mouth with his hand and shakes his head. Tom is totally confused. Nick finally finds the drugstore, um, but the door is locked. Mr. Norton, the owner of the drugstore, had left town. Just about everybody had locked up and left town, except for Tom's mother and her friend, Mrs. Blakely. They had both died. Tom watches Nick try the door, thinking about how nice an ice cream soda from inside would be. Much better than the whiskey, which had made him feel good at first, and then made him sleepy, and then had made his head ache fit to be split. He had gone to sleep to get away from the headache, but then he had bad dreams about a man in a black suit. The man in black chased him through the dreams, and to Tom, he seemed like a very bad man. Nick finally breaks the window to the drugstore, which startles Tom, and he tells Nick that it's illegal to do that. And this is the first time we hear Tom attempt to spell anything. M-O-O-N. That spells illegal. Nick doesn't hear. He simply goes inside. Tom asks Nick if he's deaf, and it seems to click in his brain. It's the robot with the pulled plug again. It wasn't an uncommon sight in May, Oklahoma. Tom could be happily wandering down the street when all of a sudden he would stop dead and go blank. Some people would laugh at him and say, There goes Tom. If his dad was with him, he would elbow Tom until he came back to life. And here we learn that Tom's dad had been around less and less in his life after taking up with a waitress who worked at the nearby bar and grill. Her name was Dee Dee Pecalot, which prompted quite a few jokes in town. And about a year ago, she and Tom's dad had run off together. Most people in May, Oklahoma, just took Tom's blackouts to be a further sign of his disability. Because psychologists believe that the human thinking process is basically based on deduction and induction. And somebody with an intellectual disability is incapable of making these particular leaps. There are some lines down somewhere or circuits shorted out. But Tom does not have a severe disability. He's capable of making simple connections. And it says every now and then, during his blackouts, he would be capable of making a more sophisticated inductive or deductive connection. He would find the possibility of making such a connection the same way a normal person will sometimes feel a name dancing right on the tip of his tongue. When it happened, Tom would dismiss his real world, which was nothing more or less than an instant-by-instant flow of sensory input, and go into his mind. He would be like a man in a darkened, unfamiliar room who holds the plug end of a lamp cord in one hand and who goes crawling around on the floor, bumping into things and feeling with his free hand for the electrical socket. And if he found it, he didn't always, 
there would be a burst of illumination and he would he would see the room or the idea plain. Tom was a sensory creature. A list of his favorite things would have included the taste of an ice cream soda at Mr. Norton's fountain, watching a pretty girl in a short dress waiting on the corner to cross the street, the smell of lilac, the feel of silk. But more than any of these things, he loved the intangible. He loved that moment when the connection would be made, the switch cleared, at least momentarily. The light would go on in the dark room. It didn't always happen. Often the connection eluded him. This time it didn't. He had said, what are you anyway, deaf? See, he finally makes the connection that Nick is deaf and he can't talk either. Tom rushes into the drugstore, forgetting that it's illegal to do so, and Nick is inside disinfecting the cut over his forehead. Tom taps him on the shoulder and confirms that Nick is both deaf and mute, and Nick nods. Tom is so thrilled that he finally got it that he claps and jumps into the air, and Nick had to grin. He couldn't remember when his disability had brought someone so much pleasure. Later, Tom and Nick are in the shade of a World War II monument, eating lunch. Nick is reading Tom's lips, when he can anyway, as Tom keeps shoving food into his mouth as he speaks, and Tom had not stopped talking since they sat, although a lot of it was repetitive. My laws, and wasn't it just thrown in for some seasoning? Nick doesn't mind. He hadn't known how much he missed being around people until he met Tom. Nick is wondering where Tom thought all the people in May had gone. Nick knew all about Tom's daddy running off earlier with a waitress. He knew about Tom's job as a handyman on a farm and how Tom had gotten jumped by a bunch of big boys one night and Tom had fought them all off until they were just about dead. He put one in the hospital with ruptures, M-O-O-N, that spells ruptures. Tom had found his mom and Mrs. Blakely at home dead in the living room and Tom had left quickly. Jesus wouldn't come and take dead people up to heaven if anyone was watching, Tom said. Nick reflected that Tom's Jesus was a kind of Santa Claus in reverse, taking dead people up the chimney instead of bringing presents down. But he had said nothing at all about May's total emptiness or the road arrowing in and out of town on which nothing moved. Nick stops Tom from talking and indicates that he wants to know where all the people went. It takes Tom a moment and Nick sees, finally, how Tom's face sort of goes slack when he's trying to deduce what Nick is asking. He finally gets it and explains that he thinks they all went to Kansas City. Everyone must have got fed up at the same time and left, except for Mrs. Blakely and his mom. They went to Jesus. Gone to Kansas City, Nick thought. For all I know, that could be it too. Everybody left on the poor sad planet picked up by the hand of God, and either rocked in the everlasting harms of same, or set down again in Kansas City. Nick tries to keep reading Tom's lips, but his eyelids are fluttering as exhaustion overtakes him, and he finally falls asleep. He sleeps for about two and a half hours and wakes up sweating in the sun. Not only that, but Tom had covered him with three blankets. Nick gets up and tries to figure out what to do about Tom. The man had been feeding himself from the A&P on the far side of town because that door had been unlocked, so it was fair game. But what would Tom have done if the door had been locked? Maybe if he had gotten hungry enough, he would have forgotten his own morals and broken in. What would become of him once the food was gone? That wasn't really what bothered Nick, though. It's the pathetic eagerness in which Tom had greeted him. 
Tom was lonely, too. He had no one left. If Tom got drunk again, he could hurt himself, and no one would be around to take care of him. But Nick wonders what possible use they could be to each other. Tom with his disability and Nick with his. Tom couldn't read, and Nick knew he would grow tired of playing charades with him. Nick figures he can spend the night in May and at least cook Tom a decent meal. Nick slept in the park that night, though he has no idea where Tom ended up. The next morning, he finds Tom in the town square with toy cars and a toy plastic Texaco station. Tom figures if it was okay to break into the drugstore, then it was okay to break into other places. Nick watches Tom play with the cars and toy gas station for a while and realizes that he cannot leave Tom behind. He was suddenly swept by a bitter and totally unexpected sadness, a feeling so deep he thought for a moment he would weep. They've gone to Kansas City, he thought. That's what happened. They've all gone to Kansas City. Nick explains to Tom that he's leaving, and he wants Tom to come with him. It takes a bit for Tom to finally grasp this, that Nick wants him to come too. And as long as he can take his toy garage, of course he's going to go. Nick needs to get Tom a bike, but when he knows how to ride. Tom never rode a fancy bike like Nick's, so Nick spends a lot of the afternoon searching through the garages in May to find one that Tom can handle. He finally finds an old-fashioned boy Schwinn bike in a detached garage at the southern end of town. Nick has to break into the garage to get to it, and he has just enough luck to find the bike is in decent shape. He'd have to get a bike basket for it, but along with the bike, he found a nearly new Briggs hand pump. Nick takes a bit of time to oil the chain and sprockets, and he takes the bike and the pump back to Main Street where Tom is napping. While Tom is sleeping, Nick goes into the local Five and Dime and finds a klaxon horn and a bike basket to affix to Tom's bike. Then he gets a tote bag and fills it with canned goods. If Nick had been able to hear, he would have known Tom woke and found his new bike. He's already riding it up and down the street using the horn. Tom packs up his garage into the bike basket and Nick places the tote bag around Tom's, quote, big bold neck. <laughs> Tom asks if they're going to go to Kansas City. Nick shakes his head. Tom asks, to anywhere we want? And Nick nods, although he knows they're going to end up somewhere in Nebraska. They ride out of May and had only been on the road for about two and a half hours when the sky turned dark and a storm came at them quickly. When they got to Route 64 on the outskirts of Roston, the storm disappears and leaves the sky an ominous shade of yellow. The wind, which had been freshening against his left cheek, died away altogether. He began to feel extremely nervous without knowing why, and oddly clumsy. No one had ever told him that one of the few instincts man still shares with the lower animals is exactly that response to a sudden and radical drop in air pressure. And then Tom tugs frantically at Nick's sleeve and screams about a tornado coming. Nick looks for a funnel, but sees none. And when he turns back to Tom, Tom is already riding his bike through the field toward a barn about a quarter of a mile away. Nick is kind of angry because that's a good way to break the bike axle, but he follows. And when he gets to the barn, he finds Tom's bike on the ground. Nick would have chalked this up to simple forgetfulness if he hadn't seen Tom use the kickstand several times before. He's scared right out of what little mind he has, Nick thought. Nick's own unease prompts him to look over his shoulder again 
and he finally sees it. A horrible darkness was coming out of the west. It was not a cloud. It was more like a total absence of light. It was in the shape of a funnel, and at first glance it looked a thousand feet high. It was wider at the top than at the bottom. The bottom was not quite touching the earth. At its summit, the very cloud seemed to be fleeing from it, as if it possessed some mysterious power of repulsion. As Nick watched, it touched down about three-quarters of a mile away, and a long blue building with a roof made of corrugated metal, an auto supply place, or perhaps a lumber storage shed, exploded with a loud bang. He could not hear this, of course, but the vibration struck him, rocking him back on his feet, and the building seemed to explode inward, as if the funnel had sucked all the air out of it. The next moment, the tin roof broke in two. The sections whirled upward, spinning and spinning like a top gone insane. Fascinated, Nick craned his neck to follow their progress. I am looking at whatever it is in my worst dreams, Nick thought, and it is not a man at all, although it may sometimes look like a man. What it really is is a tornado, one almighty big black twister ripping out of the west, sucking up anything and everything unlucky enough to be in its path. Tom grabs him quickly and pulls him into the barn. He leads Nick downstairs into a storm cellar, and Nick is very aware now of the strange thrumming vibration. It's probably the closest thing to sound he had ever experienced. As they get downstairs, Nick sees the plank siding of the barn being ripped up board by board, like rotten brown teeth being pulled out by invisible forceps. Tom pushes Nick through the door into the cellar, and in the last instant of light before the door shuts, Nick saw that they were sharing the cellar with a family of rat-gnawed corpses. It's so dark that Nick's senses are reduced to touch and smell, and neither are very comforting in that moment. He could feel the vibration of the boards beneath his feet, and he could smell death. Tom and Nick cling to each other as the vibration grows stronger. Blind and deaf, he waited for what might happen next and reflected that if Ray Booth had gotten his other eye, all of life would be like this. If that had happened, he believed he would have shot himself in the head days ago and had done with it. It feels like hours to Nick that they're in that cellar, although Nick's watch claims it had only been 15 minutes. Never before in his life had he understood how subjective and how plastic time really was. As time passed, Nick became convinced that they were not alone in the cellar. Yes, there were the bodies, maybe some poor man who had brought his family into the cellar near the end, thinking they could weather the flu like they had other natural disasters, but it wasn't the dead bodies that he was thinking of. To Nick's mind, a corpse was just a thing, no different than a chair or typewriter or a rug. A corpse was just an inanimate thing which filled space. What he felt was the presence of another being, and he became more and more convinced too, or what it was. It was the dark man, the man who came to life in his dreams, the creature whose spirit he had sensed in the black heart of the cyclone. Maybe he was in the corner or right behind them waiting, watching. He would touch Nick and Tom and they would go mad with fear. He could see them in the dark. The dark man could see tones of the spectrum that human eyes could never attain to. And to him, everything would look slow and red, as if the whole world had been tie-dyed in a vat of gore. Nick is finding it harder to separate fantasy from reality, and he was sure he could feel the dark man's breath on the back of his neck. 
It scares him so badly that Nick is about to just lunge out of the cellar into whatever was waiting for him upstairs. But Tom beats him to it. Nick catches only a glimpse of Tom as he staggers up the stairs and Nick follows, blinded by the sudden burst of light in his good eye. The roof of the barn had been torn clean off by the tornado. But Tom doesn't stop to inspect anything. He runs out of the barn like the devil himself was at his heels. Nick looks back over his shoulder and into the cellar. He can see two sets of hands protruding from the shadows, the fingers stripped down to the bone by rats. If there was anyone in the cellar, Nick didn't see him, nor did he want to. Their bikes, funnily enough, are left untouched by the tornado, and Nick finds Tom where they left them. He has a vacant, fixated stare on his face, and he tells Nick that someone was in the cellar with them, someone who had come out of the twister. Nick shrugs, and Tom is ready to go. As they leave the area, Nick realizes that Tom saved his life. If he had left Tom back in May, Oklahoma, as he had considered, he would be dead now. So Nick smiles at Tom, and he thinks they have to find someone else, just so Nick can tell Tom thanks, and his name. Tom didn't even know his name. For a moment, Nick is bemused by this, but then they get on their bikes and they ride away. That night, they sleep in the left field of a Little League ballpark. And Nick has also discovered now that there really is a Polk County, Nebraska, and a Route 30, like in his dreams. He doesn't believe in precognition or visions, and he didn't really believe in the early morning that he would find an old black woman sitting on her porch in the middle of a cornfield singing hymns on her guitar. But he felt like it's important to go somewhere and to find more people. He shared Fran and Stu's urge to regroup. Until they could do that, everything would feel alien and out of joint. There was danger everywhere, and even if you couldn't see it, you could feel it, like the presence of the dark man in the cellar, inside houses, around the bend in the highway, under the cars and the trucks. Danger, every particle of his being seemed to whisper it. Bridge out, 40 miles of bad road, we are not responsible for persons proceeding beyond this point. Part of it was the tremendous, walloping psychological shock of the empty countryside. As long as he had been in Shoyo, he had been partially protected from it. It didn't matter if Shoyo was empty, at least not too much, because Shoyo was so small in the scheme of things. But when you got moving, it was if... Well, he remembered a Walt Disney movie he had seen as a kid, a nature thing. Filling the screen was this tulip, this one tulip so beautiful it just made you want to hold your breath. Then the camera pulled back with dizzying suddenness and you saw a whole field filled with tulips. It knocked you flat. It produced total sensory overload and some internal circuit breaker fell with a sizzle cutting off the input. It was too much. And that was how this trip had been. Shoyo was empty and he could adjust to that. But McNabb was empty too in Texarkana and Spencerville. Ardmore had burned right to the ground. He had come north on Highway 81 and had only seen deer. Twice he had seen what were probably signs of living people. A campfire, perhaps two days old, and a deer that had been shot and neatly cleaned out. But no people. It was enough to screw you all up because the enormity of it was steadily creeping up on you. It wasn't just Shoyo or McNabb or Texarkana. It was America lying here like a huge discarded tin can with a few forgotten peas rolling around in the bottom. 
And beyond America was the whole world. And thinking of that made Nick feel so dizzy and sick that he had to give up. Nick thinks if they keep rolling, they'll eventually end up like a snowball going downhill and getting bigger. They'll pick up a few more people here and there um, on their way to Nebraska, or maybe they'll be picked up themselves if they run into a bigger group. After Nebraska, who knows? It was like a quest with no object in view at the end of it. No grail, no sword plunged into an anvil. Nick has an atlas, and he's putting together a route to take to Polk County. When he looks up and he sees Tom is yawning. Tom is eager to ride some more. He loves riding his bike. It's July 7th, and they turn east, not far from the Oklahoma-Kansas border. Shortly before they stop to eat, Tom stops his bike and looks at a sign that says, You are leaving Harper County, Oklahoma. You are entering Woods County, Oklahoma. Now, Tom can read this. He's seen the sign before. His dad once took him out here and showed him the sign, and he told Tom that if he ever caught him on the other side of it, he would wail the tar out of him. Nick is afraid his dad might catch him now, and he asks Nick if he thinks that he will. Nick shakes his head. He asks if Kansas City is in Woods County, and Nick shakes his head again. Tom asks if they're going into the world. Nick doesn't really understand what he's asking, but he shrugs. The world is the place, Tom explains. Are they going into the world? Is Woods the word for world? Nick nods. A little emotional, Tom is ready to go, and he bikes over the county line without another word. By the time they cross over into Kansas, Tom is tired and sulky. He doesn't want to ride anymore because the bike seat is hurting his bottom, kind of like Fran in the last chapter. He had no concept of state lines, so he didn't feel the thrill Nick did when he saw the sign welcoming them into Kansas. They camped a quarter of a mile over the line beneath a water tower that reminded Nick of an H.G. Wells Martian. Tom falls asleep quickly, but Nick stays awake watching the stars come out. Shortly before he crawls into his own sleeping bag, a crow flutters down onto a fence post nearby and seems to be watching him. Its small black eyes are rimmed with half-circles of blood, reflection from a bloated orange summer moon. There's something about the crow Nick doesn't like, and he finds a dirt clod and throws it at the crow. The crow seems to fix Nick with a bayful glare before he flies away. That night, Nick dreams of the man with no face, standing on a high road, hands stretched out east. Nick dreams of the corn, and he hears the sound of music. He wakes up near dawn with Mother Abigail's words ringing in his ear. Mother Abigail is what they call me. You come see me any time. That afternoon, they ride through Comanche County and are delayed a bit by a herd of buffalo walking back and forth across the road in search of a good graze. Nick is awed, but it freaks Tom out a bit. He's never seen buffalo before, and these certainly aren't cows. But Nick can't talk, and Tom can't read, so Nick can't tell him. On July 9th, Tom is singing the refrain of a popular song over and over. Nick can tell by the way Tom's lips move that he's singing, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? Nick himself is depressed and overwhelmed by the size of the country. He never really realized how easy it was to travel in the past. Just stick out your thumb. The law of averages would eventually favor you. More often than not, it was a man who stopped to give Nick a ride. He had a note always right in his pocket, explaining his situation and where he was headed. The car was a form of transportation and defeated the map. But now there was no car. 
although on these roads, a car would have been practical for about 70 to 80 miles at a time. When you were finally blocked, you would just abandon the vehicle, walk for a while, and then find another car. With no car, they were like ants crawling across the chest of a fallen giant, ants trundling endlessly from one nipple to the other. Nick half-wished, half-daydreamed that when they did finally meet someone, it would be as it had been when he was hitchhiking. He would see the familiar twinkle of chrome rising over the top of the next hill. It would be an ordinary American car, a Chevy or a Pontiac or a sweet old Detroit rolling iron. It was never a Honda or a Mazda or a Yugo. The car would pull over and he would see a man behind the wheel and the man would smile and say, holy Joe boys, and I some glad some bitch to see you guys. Hop in there. Hop in and let us see where we're going. But they saw nobody that day. And on July 10th, it was Julie Lowry that they met. The 10th was a hot one. They had their shirts tied around their waists and they weren't making very good time because of the green apples. They had found them growing on an old apple tree in a farmyard and they had both been deprived of fresh apples and fresh fruit for so long that Tom ate six while Nick had stopped himself at two. So around 11 that morning and running through the rest of the afternoon, Tom has the squats. Despite his irritation at the poor time they were making, Nick couldn't help but feel some rueful amusement. When they reached Pratt around four, Nick decides that that's it for the day, and he leaves Tom on a bus stop bench where he falls asleep immediately. Nick heads off to the drugstore to find some Pepto-Bismol for Tom to drink when he woke up. He found the drugstore next to the Pratt Theater, and the door is already open. It smells hot inside, stale, and overwhelmingly like perfume. Nick thinks maybe one of the bottles burst in the heat. Nick searches for the medicine, passing a mannequin on his way, except he realizes he's never seen a mannequin in a drugstore before. He looks back, and that's when he sees Julie Lawry. She was standing perfectly still, a bottle of perfume in one hand, the small glass wand you used to daub the stuff on in the other. Her china blue eyes were wide in stunned, disbelieving surprise. Her brown hair was drawn back and tied with a brilliant silk scarf that hung halfway down her back. She was wearing a pink midi sweater and blue jean shorts that were almost abbreviated enough to be mistaken for panties. There was a rash of pimples on her forehead and a hell of a good one right in the middle of her chin. Julie is stunned to see somebody, and she asks Nick if he's real. He nods. Julie asks if he's a ghost, and he shakes his head. She's starting to get a little hysterical, because if he's not a ghost, he should say something. Nick tries to mimic that he can't talk. He goes through his pantomime again, and she finally understands that he can't speak. Julie laughs. Someone finally shows up, and it's a mute guy. But he's not bad-looking, so that's something. She touches his arm and gives Nick her name. Julie's extremely flirtatious now, and Nick pulls away from her to get his notepad out. She leans over to watch him write, and Nick notices that she's not wearing a bra. And he's getting kind of warm. She reads his note, explaining who he is and who he's with. They're on their way to Nebraska, and she's welcome to join them. Julie asks if he can read lips, and Nick nods. Julie is just so happy someone is there. Even if it's a guy like Nick and a guy like Tom, 
Her parents died two weeks ago, and she's been so lonely. Julie throws herself into Nick's arms in an obscene parody of grief, and when she draws back from him, her eyes are dry and shiny. She's decided he's cute, and she wants to have sex with him. Nick cannot believe what is happening. But when Julie is tugging at his belt, he reaches out with the intent to take her by the shoulders, but he finds her breasts instead, and there goes Nick's resistance. When they're finished, Nick goes to the door to check on Tom, who is still sleeping on the bench. He's distracted when Julie starts talking about herself. She claims to be 17. Her nickname was Angel Face, and she looks so young. And in the following hour, she tells him much more. Nick finds it impossible to separate the truth from the lies, or the wish fulfillment, if you will. His eyes got tired from watching her lips move, but whenever his gaze wandered for even a moment, Julie would use her hand, lift it to his cheek, and bring his eyes back to her mouth. Nick was annoyed with her at first, and then bored. In the space of only an hour, he found himself wishing he hadn't found her in the first place, or that she would change her mind about coming with them. When she finally finishes talking about herself, she asks Nick if he wants to have sex again. Nick shakes his head, causing Julie to pout, and tell him, well, maybe she doesn't want to go with them after all. Nick shrugs, and then Julie lashes out, calling him a dummy. Her eyes are bright with spite. Then she smiles and claims to be kidding. Nick looked at her expressionless. He had been called worse names, but there was something in her that he very much did not like. Some restless instability. If she got angry with you, she wouldn't yell or slap your face. Not this one. This one would claw you. It came to him with sudden surety that she had lied about her age. She wasn't 17 or 14 or 21. She was any age you wanted her to be, as long as you wanted her more than she wanted you needed her more than she needed you. She came across as a sexual creature, but Nick thought that her sexuality was only a manifestation of something else in her personality, a symptom. Symptom was a word you used for someone who was sick, though, wasn't it? Did he think she was sick? In a way, he did, and he was suddenly afraid of the effect she might have on Tom. This is when Julie notices Tom waking up, and she goes outside to welcome him. Tom is unsure of her and looks to Nick for some kind of explanation, but Nick can only shrug. Feeling a bit uneasy, Nick goes back into the drugstore to get the medicine. When he comes out again, Tom refuses to drink the Pepto-Bismol. He does not like the taste of medicine. Nick is frustrated, and he looks at Julie, who has a hard, mirthless shine about her. She tells Tom not to drink the medicine because it's poison. Nick can only gape at her. This was her petty revenge for Nick not wanting to sleep with her a second time. He drinks the medicine himself to show Tom that it's okay, but Tom is not convinced. He's terrified, actually. His dad used to tell him if the poison killed the rats in the barn, it would kill Tom. Julie is smug and finding a lot of entertainment in this, which infuriates Nick, and he hits her hard. Julie loses it. She attacks Nick, but he pushes her back. He writes her another note and holds it out to her. Julie is furious and she bats it aside, but he picks it up, grabs the back of her neck, and shoves the note into her face. It says, we don't need you. Julie curses at Nick and tells him that she's not staying there and she's coming with them 
and he can't stop her. Nick realizes that to Julie, this is some kind of Hollywood scenario and she's the star. Julie Lawrie always got what she wanted. Nick pulls out his revolver and points it at her feet. She became very still and the flesh evaporated from her face. Her eyes changed and she looked very different, somehow real for the first time. Something had entered her world that she could not, at least in her own mind, manipulate to her advantage. A gun. Nick suddenly felt sick as well as tired. Julie quickly tells Nick that she didn't mean it. She'll do anything he wants. But Nick motions her away with a gun. Julie begins to walk away, faster and faster until she breaks into a run and disappears around the corner of a building. Nick feels soiled and depressed, as if Julie had been something inhuman, more akin to the trundling and cold-blooded beetles you find under dead trees than to other human beings. He turns to Tom, but Tom is gone. Nick searches for about 20 minutes before he finds Tom on the back porch two streets over. He doesn't want to drink the poison. Nick throws the bottle away. Tom's diarrhea would just have to run its course. Tom finally comes down from the steps and apologizes to Nick. And when they get back to their bikes, they find the tires have been slashed and their packs were strewn about everywhere. Just then, something passes at high speed past Nick's face. He's puzzled for a moment before Tom runs off. Nick sees the muzzle flash from the second shot coming from the second story window of the nearby hotel. Nick turns and runs after Tom. He had no idea if Julie fired again. All that he knew was that neither he nor Tom had been shot. At least we're shut of that hellion, he thought, but that turned out to be only half true. That night, they slept three miles north of Pratt in a barn. Tom kept waking up with nightmares and then waking up Nick to have him reassure him that things were okay. In Ayuka the next morning, they found two good bikes in a shop called Sport and Cycle World. Nick figured they could finish outfitting themselves in Great Bend, which they should reach by the 14th at the very latest. But on July 12th, at a quarter to three, Nick sees a twinkle in the rearview mirror mounted near his left hand grip. He stops and looks back to see the car that had risen over the hill directly behind them. Nick cannot believe it. It's a Chevy pickup, a good Detroit rolling iron, making its way slowly down one lane of US 281, avoiding the scattered of stalled vehicles. It pulls up beside them. Tom is waving wildly, but Nick is frozen to the spot. He thinks maybe it's Julie, smiling her vicious smile with a gun in her hand. At a range this close, there's no chance she'd miss. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But it's not Julie. It's a man who looked to be about 40-ish with a straw hat and a feather cocked into the blue velvet band. He grinned at the sight of Nick and Tom, and he says, Holy Christ on a carousel. Am I glad to see you boys? I guess I am. Climb up on here and let's see where we're going. That was how Nick and Tom met Ralph Brentner. Okay, so a lot is happening in this chapter. We're starting a new journey through three months with all of these characters. Nick is peddling his way across the country, and in May, Oklahoma, he meets the sweet but simple Tom Cullen. Tom's mom and common-law aunt are dead, and Tom believes everyone else in May just left for Kansas City. I think it's more likely that the people of May simply died, although I'm sure some probably left, but... 
they probably thought it was safer to leave. Although that where they would go that hadn't been touched by the super flu is beyond me. But Tom is such an interesting character, not because of his intellectual disability, but because he has some form of self-hypnosis that helps him come to various conclusions and connections that he can't make when he's awake, quote unquote awake. We see him do this quite a few times with Nick, although most importantly, when he realizes Nick uh, cannot hear and cannot speak. Tom also believes that everything is spelled M-O-O-N, which I think is a fun character quirk. Um, But I find the self-hypnosis thing to be very interesting and perhaps something that will come into play later. And I really love that King paired these two people together, not only because it made Nick's journey more difficult and in a way Tom's as well, but because Nick and Tom really do seem to work well together, despite the fact that they can't properly communicate. Nick also realizes that he cannot leave Tom behind. Tom isn't prepared to take care of himself in this post-superflu world. And this is a nice parallel to Larry taking Rita with him out of New York City. Rita, for her own part, was not well-equipped to survive either. Although Larry found a lot of annoyance with Rita's presence, and he felt tied down to having her around and having to essentially take care of her, Nick doesn't seem to feel this way. Yes, he has moments of frustration, but that seems to have more to do um, with the communication barrier than with Tom himself. If anything, Nick seems to find Tom endearing, especially with his childlike personality. Tom is genuinely happy to see Nick and to be going along with Nick out into the world, um, which is essentially anywhere away from Oklahoma to Tom. He doesn't seem to be a burden, not the way Larry viewed Rita as a burden. Tom even saves Nick's life, sensing the tornado coming before Nick had. Nick had sensed danger, but he didn't know what to look for. Tom did. So it's pretty great that in just one chapter... King is able to bond these two characters. They're such an unconventional pairing, too, but it really works. Nick seems to genuinely care about Tom and vice versa. And we only see Tom upset twice. Once during the tornado when they're stuck in the cellar waiting for it to pass. And like Nick, Tom has sensed a presence in the cellar with them. One, Tom claims, came out of the tornado. That was an interesting scenario. Um, We already know now that Tom is having dreams about the dark man, too. And Nick was positive that the man with no face was in the cellar with them, watching them from the corner or maybe standing right behind him. Was that a legit fear? Was Flag really there with them? Or was it lingering fear from Nick and Tom's dreams that just intensified and blurred the lines between fantasy and reality? After the tornado, when they camp out that night, Nick sees a crow land and stare at him. And it makes Nick uncomfortable. Was the crow flag in just another form? The other time we see Tom upset is when they meet Julie. Oh, Julie. Julie, Julie, Julie. (laughs) Nick had been hoping to find more people to create a snowball effect as they continue onward toward Nebraska. He found Tom in May, Oklahoma, and now he's met Julie in Pratt, Kansas. Julie tells Nick she's 17, but who really knows? As Nick deduces, she's any age you want her to be. For me, the red flags were there almost instantly just based on how quickly Julie went from shock that someone else was in Pratt to wanting to have sex with Nick. I think this is like all within, what, 10 minutes? (laughs) 
She's bemused that the first person to come to Pratt after the super flu is a guy who can't hear or talk. Sort of like Nick's own bemusement that the first person he meets after leaving Shoyo is a man with an intellectual disability who cannot read. But hey, Nick is cute and Julie decides she wants to have sex with him. And Nick does not put up much of a fight. But okay, how many people would at that point, I guess... Of course, Nick comes to regret his impulsivity because Julie is not mentally stable. As soon as she doesn't get her way, something shifts in her eyes, and her viciousness is evident. She spends nearly an hour talking to Nick about herself, and not it's not really about anything substantial, just about what she likes and the random wild things she used to do with her friends, what her plans were after graduation. Whenever Nick's attention begins to wander, she physically draws his face back to her so he can continue to quote-unquote listen. When he rejects her advances, she pouts. When she threatens not to go with him, he shrugs. This causes her to call him a dummy. Then, of course, she's just kidding. Then, of course, when Nick is trying to get Tom to drink the Pepto-Bismol to help his stomach, Julie taunts him, telling him it's poison, mostly to entertain herself. Julie is clearly lacking any kind of empathy um, or compassion, and it makes me wonder if she was like this before Captain Trips, or if facing the flu and watching everyone around her die has sort of changed her in a not-so-great way. Then again, she seems like she might be something of a compulsive liar and in desperate need for attention. Her teasing Tom, who she knows is mentally impaired, infuriates Nick, who hits her. Now, I do not condone hitting Julie, as I think it was an impulsive reaction, but even that doesn't seem to get rid of her. She insists she's coming with them. Nick has to pull his gun out and make her leave, and honestly, I had forgotten that Nick even had a gun. He had not had to use it or even threaten to use it since leaving Shoyo. Julie does leave, of course, but she reappears later while Nick is trying to find Tom. Julie destroys their bikes and their items, uh, their supplies, and then she takes up in a local nearby building to fire at Nick and Tom with her own gun, literally running them out of Pratt. Nick was just wanting to find survivors, and he did. Tom and Julie, I guess you could say he's one for one there. (laughs) Clearly not everyone Nick and Tom come across will be good people. Nick is already trying to take care of himself and Tom, and taking Julie with them would have been... A disaster of epic proportions. Julie seems like the type of person who needs the full attention on her. And uh, Tom would have been uh, a major, major obstacle to that with Nick. But all is not lost. Nick had been daydreaming about finding somebody friendly coming along in a boring American car to pick them up on the way to Nebraska. And wouldn't you know it, someone does. Ralph Brentner. Hopefully, he is much more amiable than Julie. King fits uh, quite a bit into this one chapter. There is a lot of travel for Nick and Tom. Stu, Fran, Harold, and Larry all have motorcycles, but Nick and Tom are on bicycles. I don't think Nick knows how to even drive a car. Um, Tom obviously wouldn't be able to drive a motorcycle or a car, so they're really stuck with bicycles. They don't see anyone on their way uh, to Nebraska besides Julie, although they do see signs of uh, other survivors on their way. They also see a herd of buffalo and they experience a tornado. They have a run in maybe with the dark man and they even find an apple tree 
the contents of which gives Tom the squats. So there are three major moments here beyond Nick actually meeting Tom. The tornado, Julie Lawrie, and meeting Ralph Brentner. We don't know much about Ralph yet, obviously, but he has a car, which means he, Tom, and Nick will likely be showing up in Polk County, Nebraska much quicker than initially planned. And with Ralph there, Nick will finally get to tell Tom what his name is, and that makes me really happy. Someone else who is about to meet a couple other survivors is Larry Underwood, who is slowly losing his mind in Chapter 44, which we will touch upon next week. And that is it for this episode, everybody. Um, It was a long chapter, but... Uh, a lot happened, and oh, I so love Nick and, and Tom traveling together. Um, there's obviously not a lot of dialogue for, I mean, obvious reasons, but it was just great to see these two people bonding and seeing Nick's character kind of continue to develop and strengthen um, after he met Tom. So I'm really excited to see uh, some more of them together, too. And if you are enjoying this podcast You can leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That would be fantastic. Thank you to everybody who has already done so. Um, I truly appreciate it. If you want to reach out, uh, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments you want to give me or just talk about the book, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. And of course, you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. And I think that's it. Um, It's time for me to go drink some water because I talked a whole lot this episode. So, M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.